Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Mark Harrison, Director of Consultancy Social Action Solutions and Senior Research Fellow in Social Action at the University of Suffolk. You can find Mark on Twitter at socialactioninf. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Chris. We've had two academics, if you'll excuse the term, on the show before, Professor Michael West, who's a Professor of Work and Organisational Psychology, and Professor Rob Copeland of the Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre. How do you become a Senior Research Fellow in Social Action? It's a good question, Uh, by accident probably, because essentially I'm not an academic, I'm a, a practitioner that happened to migrate into academia for about 15 years and then left academia and went back to the coalface again. But the the short answer is that when I was director of social action, the Centre for Social Action at De Montfort University, the head of uh, our school was a guy called Mike Sachs, and he became the provost or dean of what has now become the University of Suffolk in Ipswich. And when he found out that I was based in Norwich and I was working at UEA, he approached me and said, would I come down and support their development? And that's how that came about. I went down there to do a specific piece of work with their social work program uh, initially, and then he invited me to become a a senior research fellow in social action. But the link was from the Centre for Social Action, which was at that time at De Montfort University. You've done an awful lot of work internationally, for example, developing and managing a three-year deinstitutionalization of childcare in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus for UNICEF, uh, managing a global disability research project for the Department for International Development. What attracted you to working outside of the UK? Well, again, it was, it was more by luck than judgment. It was It was an accident. When the Centre for Social Action originally set up in 1989, um, we were based at the University of Nottingham. And through the 80s, we've been developing work, social action work, not just at the coalface, but also training social workers and community development workers in ideas around social action. And my colleague Dave Ward was approached by the British Council to host a group of academics from Vilnius in Lithuania. And this predated the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that we hosted them in Nottingham and shared social action ideas with them and talked to them about self-directed group work and the principles of what we saw as progressive social work. And then uh, the British Council funded a trip to Vilnius and Dave went over there to work with them and in those days when the Soviet Union was still intact to get to Vilnius you had to fly via Moscow and on the way back Dave had to spend a day in Sheremetyevo airport and he he asked our colleagues in Vilnius uh, is there anybody I can meet in Moscow you know so it's not a wasted day 
and we met somebody from the Youth Problems Institute in Moscow, which was the previous Komsomol College, but it had begun to change and with the, the changes happening uh, through Glasnost and Perestroika, began to turn itself into a training institute uh, for pedagogy and uh, particularly around social work. And that's how the, the connection was made. Um, and from that, we were invited to go and speak at a conference that was going to be half in Moscow and half in Kiev. But in the middle of the preparation for that, Ukraine declared independence from Russia. So the Moscow end went ahead, but the, the Kiev end of the conference didn't. So uh, we ended up working with both Moscow and Ukraine, you know, subsequently. But that started the links. And the subject matter was very much around looking at deinstitutionalization, thinking about how you can develop community-based alternatives to institutional care, particularly for children and uh, disabled people. Um, and at that time, the Soviet Union was a very institutionalized place and there wasn't a social work practice, you know, in the early days um, of the breakup of the Soviet Union. So we did a, a lot of work um, initially with the, the, the Youth Institute and Youth Problems Institute in Moscow and Kiev. But then that led on to other things. And I was in um, uh, the minister's office in Kiev and we were talking away and his phone went. And so he said, excuse me, I need to take this. And he, uh, he was talking to them in Ukrainian and then suddenly he just sort of looked at me and said, it's not for me, it's for you, and passed the phone to me. And it was the UNICEF representative in Ukraine and said, I've heard about your deinstitutionalization work and we were setting up um, alternatives to institutions. So planning to get children back into their families where they existed where it was safe for them to go back or setting up alternative family care like foster care systems. And she said, w will you come and talk to me? So I went and met her and told her what we were doing. And she said, will you work with us? And I said, yes, of course. And uh, so we started that work in Ukraine. And then the head of programs at UNICEF, who was based in Moscow, got interested and they, they invited us to do a three country program with them around the institutionalization of childcare. So that, that's how it came about. The, pro, the disability research program, it was a disability knowledge and research program, was when um, I moved uh, the Center for Social Action's work, or my work and the um, Social Action Research Center to the University of East Anglia. And soon after I arrived, I was invited to become the program director of this global disability research program, the disability knowledge and research program. And that was mainly working in Southern Africa and Asia, uh, but also a bit in Latin America as well. Mm. What would you say is the most fulfilling assignment you've had in the field of social action, Mark? That's a really difficult question. Um, I think the couple of things I would point to from the early days, I think, in the sense that we, social action as it's developed, came out of work with young people who were at risk and in trouble. 
back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I think that work really informed uh, the development and growth across across other fields and uh, uh, working with other population groups or community groups. And I think what we saw was that young people were being scapegoated or blamed for problems that weren't of their making. And many of them were being criminalized, not because they were doing anything particularly different or more criminal than other groups in the population, that they were just more visible, maybe because they were black, because of where they lived um, in inner city areas or outer urban estates, or because of their class. The, the approaches in social work and probation were either to try and change their behaviour and modify their behaviour so they adapted to the environment they were in um, and became, you know, compliant conventional members of society. Or the circumstances in their environment was blamed, but rather than addressing that, they would take young people out of their environment, you know, from Nottingham, they would go up into Derbyshire and do hill climbing and rock climbing and outdoor pursuits but then they would be put back into the circumstances where things were going wrong without anything changing or they would be locked up and taken away and out of the situation which also didn't seem to change anything because the recidivism rates were incredibly high once a young person went into prison if they weren't a criminal when they went in or they weren't addicted to drugs or whatever they would be by the time they came out so all those interventions seem to us not to be effective and, and to be one dimensional, I guess. So we felt that it was really important to talk to the young people about what they thought was going wrong, what they thought the problems were, but importantly, not just what the problems were, but why they existed. And then part of social action and the essential part of social action is that the people you work with are the agents of change, not the professionals. So having said what they thought the problems were and why they existed, we encourage them to develop programs or projects or things to do that would address the causes of the problems they faced. So one of the groups we work with, for instance, um, were experiencing problems in the estate where they lived and the adults and the police and authorities saw the young people as the problem. But if you talk to the young people about it, they said, we have got nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. We're very visible. If we hang about on the street, people call the police and the police come down and arrest us. Or if we go try and get into the local swimming baths, they won't let us in and they call the police and we get arrested there. So there were diametrically opposed views of the causes of the problems. So we worked with that group for a long time and two main things happened. One was the police activity became very large and the young people kept getting arrested, often for public order act offences where it was their word against the police um, and when it went to court. And a couple of young people ended up with serious convictions, which they held their, their hands up to some of them, but actually they said, this is unfair. But they were managed. They managed to um, invite the police to come and talk to them, and they told them their analysis. And they 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 found a chief inspector who would listen, 
and he changed the policing on the estate. And from that change of the policing, nobody was arrested for 12 months. So, and the young people didn't change and the estate didn't change. So it, you could see something changing. The other thing they did was they led a campaign and they got support from the chief inspector and their local councillors to get a youth club on the estate. And they got a club, they got some porter cabins uh, donated and, and the young people ran the club um, they were, and they received funding, but it was the young people that were in the lead. And that club ran very effectively for a couple of years. And unfortunately it was burned down. So that for me, that was a, a powerful piece of work. The other piece of work I would, in, from those days that I would pinpoint was in the late 70s and the early 80s, there was lots of racism and police harassment of the black community and particularly young people. And the, there were inner city uprisings, as, as you probably remember. Um, and in Nottingham, it was decided that we would try and address some of this by talking with the music groups the bands and the sound systems. And we ran a festival called Rock and Reggae. And we involved all of the local reggae bands and rock bands in deciding who was going to play and what have you. And that festival started in the summer of 1979. And it, it's still in a different form, still going today. And it has a momentum, um, which I think is interesting. Um, but actually, it was in the first couple of years it was really interesting because the, the 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 rock bands played and the reggae bands played and they alternated alternated on the stage but they were very separate um by years three and four so, some of the white reggae the white rock bands had suddenly got a black guy or a black woman singing for them and vice versa you know so um it was very it, it, it was it was a really interesting thing but um you know it was only through a, a sort of bottom up community development approach a social action approach of in, engaging with the bands and the sound systems and involving them in selecting who was going to play who's going to top the bill and what have you so it was it was negotiating it was democratic and you know i think it, that i'm really proud of that piece of work Nowadays, co-production is a large part of what you do. It, it's a term that's in fashion right now. What's your understanding of the concept and how does it differ from engagement processes that have been used in the past? Yeah, no, it is flavour of the month, isn't it? I suppose it comes out of, and that's where a large part of social action came out of. It came out of a critique of conventional or traditional ways of working. And I think that people in every community up and down the country are fed up with the sort of tokenism of consultation where uh, the authority, whichever authority it is, decides what it's going to do, sets its plans, does its budgets, and then if they're forced to, they have to go out and consult the community. So they set up a, you know, a display in a community centre or whatever, and they say, this is what we're going to do, what do you think? You know, um, we're going to build this power station what color do you want it red or green yeah there's a great example of that on the uh, bbc documentary manctopia at the moment i don't know whether you've caught that no i haven't no go on i can recommend it but um 
No, no, I mean, they're, they're contemplating demolishing an estate in, in the city of Manchester, and it's clear that the consultation is, is pretty one way. Well, I did a lovely piece of work with um, supporting some youth workers in Bradford on an outer urban estate in Bradford, and they were regenerating the estate. The authorities had decided in their wisdom that they were going to knock down all the blocks of flats that were one-bedroomed. And the young people were outraged at this because they said, where where are we going to live? Where How can we leave home and start our own families if there's nowhere on the estate for us to to have that transition and part of the problem i think was the prejudice of the people who didn't live on the estate who were paid to work there the middle class professionals the housing professionals who really couldn't understand why anybody would want to live on the estate because it was so awful and so and they wouldn't listen to the young people and in the end Young people got so angry, they were getting abusive. And we said, you've got to do something about this. You've got to go to the housing meeting. And they said, they won't let us in. So we said, well, you know, all right, you can't change the world, then don't bother. And they said, yes, we can, we will. And they burst in and said, we want to have our say. And they said, you can't, you're not on the agenda. And they said, well, we're not leaving until you listen to us. And they said, where are we going to live? We want to live on this estate. We, we're proud of this estate. We like all our families and our friends are here. We don't want to have to leave if we want to leave home and get out of our parents' house. And one of the housing officers said, oh, we'd never thought of that. So they said, OK, we'll work with you. And after that, it changed and, and some of the one-bedroom flats were retained. So co-production for me is about understanding knowledge, life experience, expertise and sharing that. So it's not to devalue the experience of community members or service users uh, over that of professionals and vice versa. It's to say, we all have skills, but we need not just to share those skills, we need to share the power. And so it's it's that power dynamic that, that makes the difference for me. Thanks, I really like that exploration of co-production. In recent interviews on this show, Nadine Smith of the Centre for Public Impact and Donna Hall, former Chief Executive of Wigan, have both underlined the need for a better quality of dialogue between government, both central and local, and the public. Uh, Nadine went as far to say that government must be more human or risk becoming irrelevant. Do you agree and can co-production be part of a solution? I suppose I... I think we have to have a more specific definition rather than think about human. Because in my experience, you know, human beings come in all shapes and sizes with all sorts of ideologies and all sorts of um, ways of hurting other people. So I don't think human really helps because... Um, some of the, the nastiest people on this planet that have done the most damage are human. Okay. What word would you choose instead? Well, I want to understand what qualities people have. So I think um, I think it's really important that we think about what are a set of values and principles that should guide our practice and what does that practice look like if it's going to be emancipatory 
if it's going to promote equality and human rights. So I think we need we need to be much more specific about that. So for me, co-production will be a methodology that flows from a set of principles that says we have to value lived experience and community voice and democratic voices over sometimes professional power. So it, for me, it's about rebalancing or redistributing power in that process and developing practices that do that. So I think there's a lot of debate about local versus national and place-based practice. I think that's part of it, but part of it, I think, is that what's been around for a long time, but has been brought into sharp relief by Black Lives Matter and the killing of um, black people in America, and to a lesser extent here, is it's expo exposed not just that police violence and the state violence, but it's exposed the, the exclusion of members of our very diverse communities from power and from access to influence. So, you know, I would point to, at the moment, the uh, black community here in the UK has set up a Charities So White campaign because public bodies and trusts and grant givers don't give money directly to black-led organisations because they don't trust them. They give it to organisations that are led by non-white people on behalf of black people. And that's the same experience that disabled people have, that government bodies, trusts and charities give money to organisations for disabled people, charities that are not run by disabled people, but they're run for disabled people. But they don't give money directly to user-led either black organisations or disabled people's organisations. So, it, again, it's about power, but that's also about resources as well and who holds the power and who holds the resources and who's trusted with those resources. And I think, you know, we're in a pretty desperate situation in this country, you know, where you look at the makeup of public, public bodies, private bodies, and, you know, often they're just all white and they're living in, you know, very diverse multiracial communities, but they don't have that representation. People from those communities are excluded. So if you don't have that representation, you know, you don't walk the walk and see the personal as being the political, that you have to behave differently, not just talk differently. Um, it, it, that, that for me is a, you know, one of the litmus tests, if you like, that I'm, I suppose I'm old enough to not trust what people say. I, tr I, I, I tend to view what people do and what, you know, what organisations look like, um, not just what they say about themselves. If if we were to move towards a more even distribution of power in our communities, what's what's the first sort of steps that we need to be taking in in your view? I mean, do we have enough leaders, for example, in local authorities and primary care networks that are prepared to embrace this? I think we've got a problem 
right through the system from the education system right through how people get employment how they become professionals and then who rises to the top so so many professions are um, professionals who go through education and then go on to professional qualifications they're taught that they're the experts that's what they're trained to do and they're judged on uh, and they're examined on and when they've passed their examinations they've got their professional qualification and then organizations reward them and promote them because they're good at their jobs and good being good at your job is about doing to communities or people on behalf of communities but not with communities and those values aren't um, valued so for me doing to for and on behalf of is part of the problem um, and it wastes huge amounts of money but also it doesn't get the results that are intended so for me it's about bringing intention together with practice and how you do that is i think through as i said you know emancipatory practices okay so if you could take over from boris johnson for a year what would your priorities be well i think i'd turn down the job because i think it's it would take more than a year but also i think my belief system is that change doesn't come from the top it comes from the bottom so I, it wouldn't be helpful taking over from boris johnson from a year for a year but i think that change from below is really important i think you know if we think about you know all the big changes that have taken place in society they have come from ordinary people taking action and then authorities being knocked into line in one way or another usually out of fear fear of losing everything but i think i think if we we think about you know again going back to black lives matters if we think back to slavery slavery was legal it was the people who fought against slavery that were criminalized that, that were seen as the problem again with the suffragettes and the women's movement it was the suffragettes that who were were fighting outside the system and illegally because the system legitimized the oppression of slaves or the oppression of women so for me meaningful aggressive change comes from the bottom up and often it comes from coming into collision with the state and with the laws that the state try and keep the status quo so for me it's it, it is about personal responsibility of seeing that change happens and starts from you as an individual but it, you can't as an individual change the world you know by yourself so you have to combine together with others who share your beliefs and share your ideas but be determined and be and be prepared to take the consequences you know so i think we see you know climate change activists at the moment really stepping up the fight because you know the state and the government will say all sorts of fine words about the climate crisis uh, as a cover for doing absolutely nothing or doing the opposite of of carrying on the pollution and the 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 crime climate catastrophe that we're facing so again it goes back to not judging people by what they say but by what they do and that's what i would judge so to go back to the question i i would turn down the job 
because I think there's a far, far bigger job to do to transform society from the bottom upwards. And is, and is your own practice designed to be a catalyst for that then? Is that how you characterise yourself? You know, social action creates space for communities to think about the issues, the concerns, the problems they're facing and think about what's causing those and then address the causes of the problems rather than skating over the surface or scapegoating other people or blaming other people. And it also sees what your responsibility is um, if you're part of the problem and how you can become part of the solution. So what changes you need to make in, in your community, uh, as well as what are the structural, the structural causes that need changing. So it's looking at both ends. So it's not just reflecting, looking in the mirror, but it's also turning the spotlight round and looking at the, the causes that are outside communities. So for instance, if you take homelessness, a small part of homelessness is about personal responsibility. You know, the problem about homelessness is there's not enough houses or there's not enough houses that are affordable, that people have money to pay rent for. So the vast majority of the housing crisis is structural. There are some issues with people who are, through whatever reasons, have chaotic lives, who are addicted or have been the victims of uh, domestic violence or racism. But essentially, you know, it's a structural problem and we need structural solutions. Homelessness is just about to explode because of the government's woeful action around COVID and, uh, and they've just decided that they're not going to extend the ban on evictions. Uh, so the courts are being lined up with thousands and thousands of eviction notices for people who can't afford, who've lost their jobs or can't afford their rent. Or So we're on the edge of a, I suspect, and I hope I'm wrong, but on the edge of a, an explosion of homelessness in our society. We're coming into land now, so I'd like to ask you a few questions that I ask all of my guests. Is there a particular experience or person you found inspirational during your career? I, I suppose when when we were casting round, going back to the late 70s, and we were dis, disaffected and dissatisfied with the sort of traditional models of operation in social work, probation work, um, education, community development, we couldn't see any theoreticians or methodologies or ideas that were helpful, particularly from... Western Europe or America, America. but uh, we were inspired by the work of Paulo Freire, the Latin American educationalist from Brazil, uh, and his book, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it seemed to us that his educational method had much more application for a, a, a practice of community development um, in the UK. So it was a set of ideas that were developed in a very different set of circumstances uh, in a different part of the world, but it seemed much more relevant to work in, in the UK uh, in the late 70s. So um, his work around education, pedagogy and praxis seemed to make sense to us. And 
and it was that we adapted primarily for um that, that formed the basis of the principles and practices that social action is based on well that ties in very well uh, with my next question which is is there a book podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders particularly in your field so i presume pedagogy of the press by paolo frieri is one of those um are there any other things that you'd point people to i think one of the most powerful critiques uh which is it relates to disability is mike oliver's social social model of disability um but i think it has much wider relevance in understanding the world and understanding change way beyond disability and i think mike and the leaders of the disability movement pay tribute to uh, the liberation movements particularly the black liberation movements in south africa and in america i've got on my the the top of my twitter feed a quote from angela davis uh, which says i'm no longer accepting the things i cannot change i'm changing the things i cannot accept <laughs> that's great i like that so i know listening to music is a big part of your self-care regime mark have you missed live music during lockdown? I have, I have. Um, unfortunately, um, I was hopeful. We They advertised a live music event in Norwich out at the showground and they'd got all the plans for the bubbles and everything and the, the, mu the event was cancelled right at the last minute. And that was with uh, uh, one of my local bands, one of my favourite bands, um, I'll give them a shameless plug, the Vagabond. But uh, I miss miss listening to, to music live, yes, absolutely. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh. Well, I think the, the, the easy ones are, you know, trust in your instincts and your judgment. I think trust other people, but also know when not to trust other people because there are bad people in the world as well as good people and give yourself a break. You know, at 20, I think you've often got, or I certainly had the worries of the world on my shoulders, as well as, you know, being very optimistic and being able to thinking I can change the world. But I think knowing that it's not your fault, that actually adults can let you down as well. And so I think some of those are important lessons. It's a bit of self-compassion yeah compassion thanks so much mark for sharing your insights from your work in social action with us today and thanks for listening to the compassionate leadership interview if you'd like to support the show you can find me at patreon.com forward slash chris whitehead email me about the show chris at damflask-consulting.com you can find compassionate leadership the book on amazon this episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield and Norwich, and the music was brought to you by 96 Pack on CPU Records. Mm -hmm.